This is Parallel, Tech Podcast with Accessibility Sprinkles, Episode 25 for January 7th, 2020. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. Thanks for joining me. It's so good to be back podcasting with you. I took a little bit of time off, kind of unplanned time off, because I was working on a really big project, which I'll actually be talking to you about later in the show. But I'm raring to go with a new year and a new bunch of podcast plans for you. Got some episodes in the works. So today's episode is unusual in the sense that I'm not talking to two guests about a tech topic with accessibility sprinkles on top. This is just me talking to you about a few things that I've sort of had on my plate for a long time and wanted to turn into an episode and haven't had a chance to do. And they're basically... Number one, an experience I had that a lot of people have already had. Mine is different because it has a low vision accessibility point of view, and so I wanted to bring that to you. And then secondly, I want to tell you all about what I spent my fall doing when I wasn't uh, sending podcasts over the parallel podcast feed. And that's what the episode is going to be. We're going to talk about Apple Watch, and we're going to talk about my book, iOS Access for All. Here we go. Let's talk Apple Watch I'm a late adopter to the Apple Watch. I got my first one in November 2019. I bought it from a Relay co-founder, Stephen Hackett. As it happens, he had a, an old Apple Watch Series 4 that he wanted to trade up from, and so he sold it to me. It's a 44-millimeter space gray aluminum case, and I am happy with those specs. I'm happy with the price I paid, even though almost immediately after agreeing to the deal, I read an article about how low the values for uh, used Apple Watches are. But again, I did and do feel like I got a completely fair deal and uh, am, frankly, very price sensitive. And so being able to get this thing for a good price, even though it's a year old, it just felt perfect. But my first task when I got an Apple Watch was to figure out whether it was going to work for me as a low vision person. I uh, have listened to and read about the Apple Watch ever since its release. I know it to be fully accessible from a voiceover perspective. I have a lot of blind friends who have and love their Apple Watches, and I am, even in their group, uh, the late adopter. I was the last person on the Mac Accessibility Roundtable to get an Apple Watch, and I was not wrong in the decision I made, but accessibility from my point of view as a low vision person is different from somebody's point of view as a voiceover user. And something a lot of people, especially if they're blind, might say is, well, why don't you just use the Apple Watch the way a voiceover user would? And my answer is no, because I use speech a lot. I read long articles and web posts and the like with speech. I use voiceover all the time, especially when I'm working on my book about iOS accessibility. But in my day-to-day life, the point of having a watch on my arm is that I am able to glance at it visually and get information from it. And to be honest, if I had to do that with voiceover, I would be even less likely to have gotten an Apple Watch. Just a personal decision on my part. I think everybody uses whatever abilities and whatever senses they have available to them, and you wouldn't ask somebody to walk around blindfolded who had some vision. So I know how to use the watch with voiceover. There are times when I enable speech and use it that way. But frankly, because... In order to use an Apple Watch effectively with voiceover, you you got to be wearing AirPods, basically, because I don't want the watch talking to me in my environment in 99% of the cases. It adds that level of complexity. I do have AirPods. I actually got a new pair of AirPods fairly soon before I had gotten the watch, and so I was set as far as that goes. But I wanted to use my vision with the watch, so the low vision issue was a big concern of mine. 
I had looked at Apple Watches a year before. I've talked about this a lot on podcasts about how I pondered getting an Apple Watch and it didn't end up doing it. I went to a store and looked at an Apple Watch and said, yeah, maybe the 44 millimeter, maybe now that the screen size is larger effectively on the Series 4. That was the first one I even gave any consideration to, and I ended up not buying it for price reasons. And as I just mentioned, I got a better deal on the, the watch that I now have than I would have had I bought it new. So now on to the uh, issue of, you know, how well is it going to work from a low vision point of view? I remember looking at some images of new watch faces for, I believe it was the Series 5, and my first reaction was, oh my god, there's too much on that screen. There's no way I could ever grok how the Apple Watch works. And I think I was a little unclear just how flexible the face and complication and app setup situation is for the Apple Watch. How many different ways you can lay out your watch to uh, maximize the, the value that it has for you. In other words, a lot of people are going to put as many complications on their watch face as they possibly can. Some people are going to put a very few on for aesthetic reasons. You can change the color of some elements of the face. You can use certain complications on certain faces while others will not work. First thing to know about my particular kind of low vision is that I am a dark mode person. I like a dark background with light text or light objects on top. And the watch, much more than the pre-iOS 13 iPhone, is a dark mode centric environment. So you default to dark backgrounds with light imagery on top. And you can change that in many ways. And some people perhaps like a light watch face, but I'm not having to fight what the interface wants me to do in order to get the kind of device look that I want. So it's funny, I recorded a section about watch faces for you. And then I actually did a lot of thinking about the watch faces I was using and how and why, and I kind of totally redid them. And I'm going to tell you the current version of what I did. Uh, suffice it to say, I am a proponent, maybe the inventor, I don't know, of the multi-watch face lifestyle. I can't get the complications I want to work and play together on a single face or even a couple of faces. And because the complications are so small, and have such specific functions, I have just decided I'm going to live with several faces. So let me describe them to you. The first thing to say is that an issue with me for complications is that if you have a complication that has information in it that has to be read, so heart rate, a temperature complication, even a little notification, a text message notification that would give you a number of messages, it's going to be hard for me to read those unless they contrast with the background of the complication and with the watch face. And so there are a couple of complications that are really important to me that I have a lot of trouble reading, and those are heart rate and the temperature. I really like to know what temperature it is. I don't know why, it's just a mania. I like to know that, and I'm really tired of asking speakers in my house for it. So I've incorporated solving some of these issues in the multi-face lifestyle that I've adopted. The first face we'll talk about is the Infograph Modular. I love this thing because it has three different complications at the bottom. It has a text display where I can put news, and then there's a complication up in the upper left corner. The, the upper left corner complication I use for drafts, so that's audio input, and all the complications down below 
our audio output. So I have the Overcast podcast app, and I have uh, the Voice Dream reader app, which allows me to listen to uh, text with speech. And then I have the Audible app. So that's the function of that face is basically to give me access to audio from my watch. The next watch face, and, and frankly the one that I would just choose for aesthetic reasons, is the utility face, because I like an attractive analog watch style. The watch I had before I got the Apple Watch, uh, prior to the Fitbit, I should say, the, the watch that I really love and adore and was so sorry to have to take off my arm in order to use this fancy electronic dealy uh, with a computer inside, uh, was an analog watch. And the utility face is just really simple. There are complications up in the corners, but they're too small to provide any information without me tapping on them. So I have utility there just so that on occasions, and there are a lot when I'm not interested in being overloaded with, loaded with data, I just would like to have a nice looking watch on my arm, I'll switch to the utility face. Uh, the next one is the activity digital face. And again, even though I like analog displays, the nice thing about the digital display on this one is it's both easy to read for me and also gives me access to activity information, both in terms of the rings visual and the uh, numbers associated with each of the rings. And so I get that confirmation. And up in the upper right is the little workout complication. So that lets me quickly switch from looking at my rings and realizing I haven't done any exercise today to popping into workout and going and doing that. The next one, which I'm having trouble switching to, there we go. I have to cheat and use my phone to do this because I can't remember the names of any of these faces. Once I set them up, I completely forgot them. Uh, this one is called X-Large, and the, the X-Large face gives you a digital readout of the time up at the top, and you can have a complication below, which happens to be much larger than the time. I don't need it quite this large, but this is where my weather temperature complication is. So I'm looking at it right now and it says 72 degrees in giant type. And the last one I chose is the modular compact, which gives me that analog face I like with a news complication below. And then I have a weather complication and overcast sitting to the left of the analog dial. And I think that was one of the first ones I connected with just because it had both the analog dial and the complications that were relatively easy to, for me to read, not because of the size, but because of the complications I happen to have chosen. I will say that I have the text cranked up as large as it possibly can be, but I have trouble reading the lines of news without a magnifier or tapping in to see what they say. But uh, even though I can't do all of the things I might like to do uh, with complications at the top level, uh, I, I feel like at the moment this is a a reasonable compromise. I should say that a couple of the other ones I've tried, one called Duo Numbers, which gives you an enormous digital readout of the time. So if I were following the time closely and didn't want to be obtrusive about it and uh, wanted to be able to look at my watch from a distance and see what time it was, I might use that one. I have done in the past, but I think it's ugly, so I don't, don't use that very often. So the multi-face lifestyle is making my life with the Apple Watch much better. So let's talk about how I have actually been using the watch and how I enjoy using it and what I do and don't do. It took me a long time to think about syncing content to the watch, mostly podcasts and audiobooks. I knew you could do it, and I knew it was pretty straightforward to do, but for some reason I just never did it because I always had my phone with me. This is a watch without a cellular connection, and I'm not used to not having my phone around. But lately, I've actually started playing with the idea 
of just syncing content and, for example, getting up from my desk and going for a walk just with the watch and not with the phone, which is great if you don't have pockets or if you just want to, hey, be free away from the phone for just a little bit. So I put the phone on silent, I put it on my desk, and I get up with the watch and a podcast and some AirPods, and I go off on my walk, and it feels great, and I really like it. And the Overcast podcast app makes it super easy to sync either by the playlist or by the individual podcast. The interesting thing about the watch is they don't tell you how much capacity there is for storing data on it. Remember that the old iPhone, the original iPhone, had 8 gigabytes of data, uh, but this watch over here I have has 10.4 gigabytes available. Even though my podcast library is ridiculously large and I'm way behind on shows, I can choose to sync far less. I think I have something like three or 400 megabytes worth of podcasts and audiobooks synced over to the watch, and if I was willing to wait the amount of time in the morning it took to sync them, it would all work out. And I, I found that that's part of my routine now is that I'll get up and I'll uh, wake up overcast on the phone and make sure that it's going to start syncing with the watch because I find I do have to sort of prompt it a little bit. And uh, then by the time I get to work and certainly by the time I get to go on my walk a little later on, I'm going to have plenty of podcasts waiting for me. And it's a, it's a pretty seamless experience and I dig it. I, as I said, have been using the activity features more than I thought I would. I'm not obsessed about closing my rings, although what I found is that the stand and move rings are, for me, exceptionally easy to close. I have less good luck with my exercise rings because I don't do as much as I should. And I guess I just use that more as a data collection thing for myself. You know, am I more active or less active today than I was yesterday? Friends of mine have said that if you get off a pace that you've established, the watch can be kind of annoying and pesky about, hey, why don't you close those rings? And I can see that, but it hasn't really bothered me. I've not engaged in social uh, ring sharing uh, with people. I guess that was more of a thing when the Apple Watch first came out because nobody has approached me and said, hey, want to share ring activity information? But to be fair, I haven't approached anybody about that myself either. Another thing that I have done with my watch is curate notifications very specifically. Like everybody else, I get lots and lots of notifications throughout the day, but the only ones that get to my watch are ones that I'm either going to act on through my watch or that I have some immediate need to look at. Right now I have my Twitter mentions and direct messages on my watch, and for some people out there, people who have perhaps a larger Twitter following than I do, that may seem crazy because they get a lot more random Twitter activity than I do, but I curate my watch notifications and my Twitter feed in such a way that it's manageable for me. So I enjoy having Twitter mentions and direct messages come to my watch. I have text messages come to my watch. I never have any email come to my watch. It's just not sensible. I get too much email and too much of it is just not stuff that's that important. Text messages has been have been a challenge. I get notification and then I open up the text message, and I find the colors difficult. I can read the message, but I, the comprehension, I can sort of get the gist of it, but I find it too difficult to read. I'd much rather pick up my phone and read my text message because the screen is just too small, and if you've written me anything other than, hi, how are you, I'm not going to get it, and don't even think about emojis because the watch screen is just too small. So I don't think I'm going to do away with 
text message notifications, but I also don't respond to them from my watch, nor do I read with any degree of comprehension. Most of what I get from text message on my watch is, oh, my husband sent me a message, my boss sent me a message, let me process it on my phone. I use Siri on the watch sometimes, mostly for listening to messages. That's, a, that's one exception to that, I suppose. If, I, if there's a text message that I really want, I will use Siri on the watch to get the content of it, keeping in mind that I either have to be wearing AirPods or I have to be in a place where I don't mind listening to my watch. And that's the other thing. The AirPods are connected to my watch when I'm listening to audio podcast or an audiobook or something, which is, which is quite frequently. So it's not usually a problem. But if I don't have my AirPods in, I'm probably not going to engage uh, speech on the watch. So as I mentioned, the Apple Watch does have specific accessibility features. I'm going to talk about text size, which I have to its absolute maximum. I also use bold text. I have brightness turned up to about a middle level because I prefer not to have super bright screens blinding me. The only accessibility features I use are Zoom, which I mentioned, and the way Zoom works on the watch is you can have it on and then you can use a gesture to activate it and you can set it to a particular zoom level and I've just turned the zoom level down from I think 5x to 3x and I'm thinking that might make it a little easier for me to use. One last thing real quickly, when I considered buying a watch in 2019, the bargain I kind of made with myself was that if it didn't work out for me, I would give it to my mom who is older and the ECG feature seemed like a great idea, but especially the fall detection feature I thought would be great for her. She lives alone and she has a life alert system. She is in good health and ambulatory and all that good stuff, but you know, older people do occasionally fall and that's a concern for her. And so I thought, well, wow, the watch would be great. I wonder how well this fall detection thing works. Well, I inadvertently found out I did not fall, didn't hurt myself in any way, but I was in, and and then I'll tell you this story partly because this is just, this is an accessibility challenge that I suspect a lot of people hadn't really thought about. So I was in an auditorium with a carpeted floor and carpeted steps on either aisle, and I was walking down the steps and I was talking to somebody as I was walking, and also the, the carpet, the relevance of that is that it meant that there was no distinction between where there was a step and where there was a flat surface that my eye could detect. And often if you ever see a step that has sort of a different texture or color right at the edge of the step, one of the reasons that that's done is to make it easier for somebody who has uh, difficulties with vision or if it's dark uh, to actually spot that step. Well, I took a little bit of a trip on the step. As I say, I did not fall, didn't even lose my footing, but I came down off a step pretty hard and landed standing up. I feel compelled to point out I was standing up. I don't know why. On the next step, and my watch thought I had fallen. And it asked me two questions. It's, it said, it said, did you fall? And I said, yes. Did I say, I think I said, yeah. And then it asked if I wanted to call 911 or if I was fine. It was assessing whether I had fallen. It was taking the next step. And basically, it was also trying to figure out if it had correctly surmised that I had fallen. So I thought the reaction that the watch gave me was was perfect. It uh, gave me a haptic tap as it indicated that I had fallen so that not only was it visually giving me information, but it was also saying, hey, 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 I'm aware of what's going on. Just in case you don't know, you fell. What's going on? Do we need to do something about that? So I can attest that even if you don't throw yourself down a set of stairs to determine that the fall feature works, that it actually does work. All in all, Apple Watch accessible, uh, not 
essential to my life because of the sort of workarounds and compromise I've had to make, and also just because my predilection is not to have a watch that's integrated with the rest of my life. I like the idea of having this watch that I've worn for 20 years and continuing to wear and replace its watch batteries, but otherwise it works. I'm going to keep wearing the Apple Watch, but I can see a time when I would stop doing it. And it, it doesn't feel like it's something that's uh, crucial to my life, but I am enjoying it. So this is a part of the show that may seem to some people a little bit self-serving. Heck, it seems a little self-serving to me, but it's me, so I'm going to allow it. Um, I completed the seventh edition of my book, iOS Access for All, Your Comprehensive Guide to Accessibility for iPad, iPhone, and iPod Touch. I released it in early November. Seventh edition of the book, I cover everything to do with accessibility for the iOS platform. And as you can imagine, each edition of the book gets bigger and more complex. And iOS 13 was a particular challenge because it was a really big upgrade for Apple in general. And for accessibility specifically, we had one brand new feature and we had a number of significant updates to other accessibility features that had to be covered. And oh, by the way, iOS 13 was and continues to be, well, there's no other word for it. It's buggy. And so there was a challenge about when do you release it? What do you say about the bugs? And at what point do you just push the button and say, I need to put this out? And I, frankly, in the previous edition of the book, had not gotten it out as soon as I had wanted to. I got it out in January of 2019 when iOS had been released in September. And I made a big commitment to myself long before I ever saw iOS 13 that it was going to go out earlier, that it was going to be at the very least within the same calendar year as the iOS was released, and then also that it was going to be out at a time when iOS was pretty stable. And I am not somebody who believes in having a book come out the day that the operating system ships. That used to be a thing back when paper books about technology were published. If you were writing about a piece of software or an operating system, they called it day and date. So you were supposed to have your book ready when the operating system or the piece of software came out. And that means that you didn't actually cover a lot of the bugs that got fixed and you didn't do a very good job, frankly, of covering the advanced features of how to use that software. And I've written books like that because my publisher has said, this is when your book will be released and so you better be ready. And I've hated every one of them. And so I have always had the commitment with iOS Access for All that it was going to be ready when it was ready and when I had the chance to use all of the shipping features and write about all of the features as they shipped and the screenshots would be the shipping screenshots as opposed to some beta stuff that I looked at in July. And the proof is in the pudding in that plenty of features that start out in beta releases of iOS do not make it to the final finish line and they look somewhat different. And in the case of accessibility, I'll just say that there were features that physically moved around within the interface. So it would have been confusing had I not essentially confirmed all the stuff I had written during the beta period after the operating system had shipped and given myself time to let it gel. And then I also had to go through a full copy editing and proofreading phase. So I believe that this is not only the most comprehensive book about iOS accessibility, but the most accurate. And I'll put that up against any book inside or outside of the accessibility universe. And there is less being written about iOS accessibility now than there has been in the past, because uh, at least one book that was being written is no longer being published. 
And so I feel I've got this sort of special responsibility to make sure that what I produce is something that's going to be the book of record for accessibility users and that it's going to be comprehensive. And then when I tell you it's comprehensive, that you're going to find what you're looking for in that book. Whenever I talk about my book, I talk about what is in it, what chapters are in it, how it's organized. And I've talked about that on a lot of podcasts lately. And you can find that in the table of contents. So I thought I would give you guys something special, something I've never really talked about. Fun things about sales statistics and formats. And this is interesting to me because, as I mentioned earlier, not a fan of the PDF format. And so I always want an excuse to not have to do it. So I have this sort of monster spreadsheet where I track all the sales of the book in every format over time. And I thought I would share some fun stuff with you about overall sales and sales by format. The version of the book, I've been doing this book since iOS 7, one a year. The version of the book that sold the lowest number of copies was the iOS 8 version. The version that sold the most copies was the iOS 11 version iOS 13 still remains to be seen. There's a lot of time left. And I've had the experience of getting some bulk sales later in the year, in the spring, from school districts and rehab entities who use the book for training clients. And so we'll uh, hold off on iOS 13 evaluation until then. So the book has always been available in EPUB and PDF format. And then with the iOS 9 version, I added a version that was sold in the iBooks store, now the Apple Book Store, and that is an EPUB book. It's identical to the version I sell on my website, but uh, the benefit is if you like to have it in your Apple Books library, and if you'd like to give me 30% less money, then go ahead and buy it from the Apple Book Store. So for the first two editions of the book, somewhere between 70 and 75% of all the books were EPUBs. So yeah, a good 30% of the people were buying PDFs. When we get to iOS 10, about 48% of the books I sold were EPUBs from my website, and about 26% were EPUBs from the Apple Bookstore. That 26 to 30% number has kept up over the course of iOS 10, 11, 12, and now 13 editions of the book. So there's a solid number of people who want to buy from the bookstore but enjoy the EPUB format better than the PDF. For some reason, the iOS 12 edition was kind of weird. I got back up to 62% EPUBs from my website, and it went down to 17% PDFs, with the number of books from the Apple Bookstore at about 23%. So go figure. I don't know why the iOS 12 edition in PDF format was just not very popular. Now, with the iOS 13 edition, I'm selling this combo file that includes both the EPUB and the PDF version of the book. And surprisingly, 18% of all the iOS 13 books I've sold are in this format. So I guess it's going to prove to be popular. Well, I hope you enjoyed those random numbers. I probably should have warned you to slow your podcatcher back down to 1x, or maybe, I don't know, skip ahead past the numbers. But it's interesting to me, and I like to say that it helps me decide what to do with book formats in the future. Maybe it does. It does give me confidence that this combo thing is interesting and useful to people. I don't know, maybe I'm charging too little for it. Bwah ha 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 ha. That'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, if you haven't subscribed to Parallel yet, go to relay.fm slash parallel. You can subscribe. You can also listen to and subscribe to all sorts of other great Relay FM network shows. 
So go and do that. And also join Relay FM. It's a wonderful place to be a member. You get all sorts of great perks, including extra podcasts and cool newsletters with information about the desks of people in the Relay FM network, which is actually a super fun feature. I enjoy that every single month. You can also talk to me about this show on Twitter over at Parallel Pods. If you subscribe, you'll get announcements of new episodes, but it's also a great place to let me know what you think of episodes we've already produced, what guests and topics you'd like to see covered. I would really like to increase user feedback and interaction in 2020. So come on over, Parallel Pods on Twitter, or you can talk to me directly at Shelly on Twitter, S-H-E-L-L-Y, secret. A lot of what I say on one feed gets retweeted on another one. So subscribe, tell your friends, go on Twitter, do all the things, and uh, let's help make 2020 a great year for Parallel and for your understanding of technology and accessibility and for my general happiness, which is what it's all about, right? No. Did I mean, did I say that out loud? I guess I did. I'll be back in two weeks. Bye. <laughs>